Hey guys, it's Steve on my phone in Hawaii, where it happens to be turkey season. And it is right now turkey week here at Meat Eater, which means tons of great turkey hunting content, a lot of great offers on turkey gear at TheMeatEater.com, and even a calling contest where I am getting my ass thoroughly kicked. Go find it all at TheMeatEater.com. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. What's happening, all my woods people? <laughs> We're chilling in E-Town right now, and it's past my bedtime, KC. Me too. Dude. Are oh. you tired? Yeah, I got up at 4.30 this morning. And worked till 8? Worked till 8, yeah. Hunted Man. from 4.30 till... I got my vehicle at 11 to leave that place, which is kind of a strange thing. Just I have late deer movement over there, so I have to stay in the stand late. But And then... Had about an hour and a half for lunch and then got to work, and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> have you eaten dinner yet? I did. I did. I have not. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm hungry. You might need <laughs> another cough drop That's then. why I'm eating cough <laughs> drops. Yeah, exactly. I'm starving, so I'm eating cough drops. Yeah. Um, so, you've had a couple of pretty good hunts recently. I have. Compared to our normal Texas I, hunts. I have had some good hunts. I've been really sticking to the permission stuff here lately, close to home on private uh, mostly because I'm trying to get this house finished and I don't have time to run, you know, two, three, four hours across the state to go to, you know, a public parcel when I can drive 10 minutes up the road and hunt my permissions place. Not to mention I've had two shooter bucks show up in daylight yeah. in the last week over that here. Helps. That really helps your motivation to go somewhere. Well, the weather hasn't really been like no. something that... And here's the here's the thing, dude. I've got I've got a theory. Okay. All right. This is groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> kind of. I, I'm being a touch tongue in cheek, but I also really believe this. I believe it. Um, I don't think people talk about humidity enough with how it affects deer. I think that everybody is so Midwest oriented, or you know, like there's uh, so much media coming from the Midwest. Yeah, coming from that area. Well, it's always forty percent humidity there. It always mm-hmm. feels good. Around here, this happened this week. Like 60 degrees one day felt totally different than it did the next day, and it was because the humidity the day before was 45, and the next day it was 80. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a huge difference to the deer too. Like yeah. it's got to. I can. I mean, I can we tell feel it. in this stand. Like the other day, I saw three bucks. Who knows? Maybe more would have come in if one hadn't spotted me in the tree. That's another story. But um, you know, and today it was much more humid, and I only had one deer come in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, can deer sweat? I don't believe they can. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, uh, there's very few animals that actually do sweat. So I, I wonder how the humidity affects them. Then you know what I mean. Like for us, it feels warmer in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But is is that? I don't know. Like, are you saying that perspiration is the key to humidity not working? And because you your perspiration is not evaporating, then the humidity, like well, that's why you feel warmer. No, I'm just saying, like, I guess I don't like humidity because it makes me sweat like freaking crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I walk out and I'm just but sweating, like, every time I move. Are you so, always sweating that much, but it, you evaporate when it's low humidity? Maybe. I don't know. I think that's how it works. Hmm. I don't know. But I, I didn't go much past AMP 1, so I don't know that much <laughs> about this stuff. Yeah. But so I, I think that's correct. Yeah, maybe you're right. 
but it's something to think about. Maybe we can. We need to find somebody to get on the podcast. We about do. That. We need to get somebody like uh, like anatomically talk about deer. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah, but I I feel you on that, man. And feels. I mean, I'll just say this: until last night. Last night I, I seven folded my whole <laughs> the whole year's deer sightings, yeah. and last night it was not really humid, and yeah. I've hunted a lot of humid days, and that may have something to do with it, you know. Yeah, so. I think it makes a difference, man. Yeah. We're gonna just kind of maybe keep that in our minds, yeah, and then just see how it, you know deer <laughs> movements affected by that. Yeah, well, I had I had a couple shooters show up recently too. I checked mm-hmm. a trail camera today in the middle of the day. And when I got out of the stand last night, a about 45 minutes later, a buck that is a four-shooter shooter showed up. Oh, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, it's starting to come on, but, I, you know, prior 45 minutes prior to that, I had to jump out of the stand and spook seven does to get out. <laughs> yeah, um, man. Things are, things are starting to happen. I mean, it's that time of year. It's, it's, it's almost like it snuck up on us, you know, um, that – it's almost November. Yeah, right now we had like those cold fronts early in October, and then it's been such mediocre weather ever yeah. since then. It's not bad weather as far as like living as a human. It's very nice, mild days, but like we need we need some cold fronts or some fronts to yeah. push through, and just at least like a day or two here and there. Our fronts, know. we had so much rain, dude. We did like the humidity and the rain. For like three weeks, I couldn't get my windshield to like, yeah. I couldn't get it to clear up, you know. There's an inch of water in the floorboard of my vehicle because I think it all came from like it raining so much on those days and getting in and out of the vehicle, just the water off my shoes. Yeah. There's that much water in there. Oh <laughs> it's gosh. crazy. I don't know. I got to get a shot back after it or something. Yeah. But yeah. It's hard Anyways. to get that to evaporate probably yeah. inside. No, no kidding. Well, uh, if you guys haven't heard already, you've been living under a rock, but we're doing a giveaway. It's an Exodus Trek trail camera, and we've been using our Exodus on, on these uh, permission properties that we have. Mm-hmm. We're only using the Exodus right now. And, well, I just put out a different brand camera just because it was something I had laying around. <laughs> but um, that's my primary camera. That's your primary camera, mm-hmm. and they've done really cool videos we've got some really cool videos uh, yeah and honestly we both have testament right now of how video makes a huge difference as opposed to just taking pictures or even burst yeah because you get a much better concept of how the deer are using the area right it's like it's unreal and then you get to see like i have one buck in particular that i thought was a three-year-old but because of the way he is acting around other three-year-olds i have suspicion that he might be a four-year-old he's a touch bigger but just because he is a more dominant figure, right. I think that he is an older buck. Yeah. I don't think he's going to be a shooter just because I would like to see him get a little older. But anyways, it's just yeah. like a little subtle details like that, that you get to see in video. Yeah. You know, you get to see deer's personality. Like I've got another buck that I call Cautious. Actually, uh, he's the buck that was in that video that we just released. Um, okay. The two-year-old. He's a big two-year-old. Yeah. Right? And I call him Cautious because he, he constantly like – picks up corn, sticks his head up, and looks around seven directions. Dude, Like, he the was. whole time. It doesn't matter, like, if there's other deer around or not. He does it on the way in, on the way out. Just his nature, you yeah. know? So, like, and then I've got other deer that are just so carefree. Yeah. You, know? you snuck in there on Cautious today, didn't you? Or was that yesterday? Yesterday. Yesterday. Dude. Yeah, yesterday. 
Did the hanging hot life. It did make me feel good. <laughs> it was cool, man. Yeah. But anyway, back to the tr- to the Trek gig- giveaway. Oh, sorry. No. Uh, Exodus Trek Trail Camera is what we're giving away. I'm sure many of you have heard this, and I know a lot of you have already given reviews. So thank you for that. We've got some really cool ones, and one that we re- even made us laugh pretty good. All you have to do is give us a review on iTunes, five-star review. And yeah. Just, uh, we Be sure and type something. something and put your name on there. Otherwise, yeah. we don't know who you are. So leave us a five-star review, and that time is running out on that because this is going to release on the 25th, right? Yeah, Something like that. I think so. And we're going to announce this on the 30th. Yeah, so, so you'll hear from us. The next time you hear from us, we'll be giving we'll be giving it away, right? Oh, you're right. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So this is the last time you get warned about the Trek Trail camera giveaway. Uh, make sure you... Search the podcast on your app. You have to search it even if you're subscribed to us. Search it. Scroll down to where it says reviews. Give us a review. Five stars and say what you want. And you are in the running for it. And honestly, odds are pretty good to win a $150 truck yeah, right now. no kidding. You know what I'm, I'm about to make another account. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. And then make sure the only place we're going to announce the winner of this thing is on the Big Buck Breakdown on October the 30th. Yeah. So make sure you listen to that episode. And it is a big buck. It is a big buck. It's a ginormous buck. <laughs> it's a ginormous <laughs> buck from one of our good buddies uh, who shall not be named. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so check that out. Uh, check out the, the uh, I don't remember, something about a big two-year-old buck or whatever. It's yeah. a video of that cautious buck you were talking about. That's on mm-hmm. our YouTube channel now. And uh, subscribe so you can see what we're doing this this. Uh, fall and winter man because um we're gonna be posting a lot of content and we're gonna try to keep it good content um stuff with deer in it mostly yeah. <laughs> uh i've been trying like like i said i've had several hunts without a deer so you guys haven't seen it really any of that footage yet and i don't think you will because i don't uh want to torture you too bad but uh anyway is there anything else going on man i'm hunting in the morning oh dude good luck i know and we're feeling good like right now you and i both are like it could happen tomorrow oh, every could. time we hunt. Dude, I'm telling you, I checked the camera like maybe two, three days ago, and then I checked it today um, during the middle of the day because I thought I might go this evening if there was something worth you know showing me or whatever mm-hmm. that, that I needed to. Um, and there was like so much more buck action this last pool, and it was only two days worth. And so anyway, I'm starting to – now that I saw some deer there, starting to figure it out. That's one thing we've kind of talked about is like the both of us are hunting a pretty similar area and it's pretty residential overall. Uh, lots of traffic, lots of road, county roads mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And um, it's it's so interesting how these deer are using soft spots where humans can't really see them mm-hmm. during the day to move, you know, and even during the night. But, yeah. you know, there's I mean, like it's... farms and dogs and chickens and stuff all over the place and guys mowing their yard and these deer are still finding places that are soft spots to move through. And it's interesting because what you look at as being like the main route that this deer should travel from this big wooded property into my property isn't always the case, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, it's not so much about uh, cover as it is just where they feel the most comfortable. Yeah, and staying those, away from humans. Yeah, and normally, like, what we've learned throughout our public, you know, adventures is that those two are usually one and the same, and mm-hmm. it's not that way on this private stuff, man. It's different. It's, and it's really weird that it's that much of a difference. You yeah. You know, like, it's a strange thing. Yeah, I know, dude. I, it's, it's nuts, and we're starting to figure that stuff out, but it's one of those things, like, 
sorry if you guys are hearing some big monster trucks. We're in East Texas, so we have to have a muffler, a, you know, modif- modified muffler. But uh, anyway, so, but it's really interesting. And I think that as we figure these out, when, once we do, like, we're going to be in the money. We're mm-hmm. going to understand mm-hmm. it, but it may take a few years to figure out all the places they're coming from. Hopefully, we get to hunt these properties for a few years, you yeah, know. Yeah, hopefully so. But um, on the podcast today, we have... Man, this is one of my favorites. Dude, you've been looking forward to this one for about two years. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and we, we actually did this podcast a while back. We wanted to save it for a pre-rut podcast so everybody mm-hmm. could get all their rut tactics in, in line going into the, you know, what everybody's going to take as their rut, rutcation, I guess. And and uh, this is Jeff Sturgis from Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Jeff, like... Man, he knows something about everything, it seems like, you know. I mean, the guy talks about, you know, modifying your property to to be a big buck paradise and yeah. this and that, to hunt well or to to be habitat for deer or whatever it might be. And you're like, oh, well, he's, you know, it's cool stuff. It maybe doesn't pertain to me as, as a guy who doesn't have land and who's young right now. Uh, you know, I log that in my mind or whatever. But then all of a sudden you start like digging deeper into Jeff and you understand this guy has killed big bucks on public land. Oh, yeah. And hunts public land every year all the time. Yeah. It's crazy. And yeah. I'll tell you what else. Whitetail Habitat Solutions is a good follow. Oh, yeah. Because that dude, like, okay, there's these people that put out articles and you read it and you're like, hmm, I didn't really learn anything. Mm-hmm. It just was a deer hunting story. He puts out stuff that, like, every time I'm like, I need to see what this is all about. Yeah, I know. You know, like, it's good quality information, yeah. man. So I'm ready to, like, get that in verbal form because I'm not a great reader. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how I feel like I, I am better at watching a YouTube video and letting Jeff tell me. That's you right. Know, so. but the, and that's a good thing. You know, he's got he's really got a great YouTube channel. So y'all, y'all subscribe to his channel and why they're subscribed to ours. And uh, I'm ready to get Jeff on the podcast. Let's what call him up. Let's do it. All right, so on the phone now, we have Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Jeff, I was going to ask you how your vacation went, but apparently it has not <laughs> <Yeah>. ended yet. <laughs> it, well, it's kind of extended. We had, uh, um, first off, great to be on the podcast. I'm looking forward to the discussion. But, yeah, the vacation ended with, uh, on the way home, the transmission going out. So I, I put a lot of miles in my truck. I don't know. I think it's a 2015 with 140,000 miles. But... It shouldn't have gone out yet. My yeah. last truck lasted almost 400,000. So I'm waiting for that thing to get fixed and, <laughs> and we'll be, we're supposed to be back Sunday and I think I'm going to get back on Thursday. So. Yeah. Well, you're somehow I'm, I guess I'm lucky, but mine's got probably about 190 on it right now. And I pulled out the other day onto the highway in the early in the morning. Luckily there weren't many people out and, and, uh, it just like, basically said uh, something about my stability track and then it shut off basically and as we're going down the highway no i had to to pull into a bank and turn it off for about five minutes yeah it's it's having some electrical issues i think um but yeah i'm hoping that i don't but like i'm I'm hoping that if i do end up in the same boat as you that i'm on vacation as well instead of like i need to be working and i can't get my truck to work (laughs) yeah and that's a cool thing too i just just finished writing a uh, blog and published a YouTube video today. So that was at least do some whitetail work while I'm on the road sure. and motel, wherever I'm at. So you, uh, you know, you're speaking about it, but uh, explain for the listener that may not know much uh, kind of what you do. It's kind of hard to describe, but what I do is I design whitetail properties around the country. 
And so since 2000, I started the business in 2005. And since that time, I've been to uh, right around 700 clients in 25 states. Wow. And so what I do is I go to the property, uh, help them with their timber management, give them suggestions and, uh, and give them a plan and design to what to do with their timber, how to make bedding areas, how to make travel corridors, how to put install water holes if they need them or not, uh, how to put in food plots based on their equipment and their resources, uh, what they should plant based on their location and really wrap that up into a, a complete design that, you know, you're really the, the highest goal is to attract as many whitetails to your land as possible without you spooking them when you go out to hunt. And so what I find, it doesn't matter for hunting on public land or private land or on designing private land uh, parcels and, and um, whitetail setups, but hunting and how you hunt is always the lowest hole in the bucket if that makes sense. You, mm-hmm. you can't overcome uh, sloppy hunting um, efforts or poor hunting practices um, with the best habitat or the best uh, whitetail parcel, you know, in the country. Mm-hmm. Man, that sounds like uh, one of the most rewarding jobs that you can, you could have, I think, you know, that's. Uh, oh yeah. It's, it's fun. And I have a list about 200, 200 long of different ideas that I can carry over when I write articles. So I have about 700 articles online out of my site and I think about 150 YouTube videos and that'll, you know, increase by a hundred on both ends or more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I have four books out too. And so what I learned on whitetail parcels directly flows into my writings or the videos or certainly, you know, my, my books that are out there too. So I, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. I, it's, you know, basically whitetail is all, 365 days a year but of course um like we were talking earlier i really like to go fishing too <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's, it's been a nice uh relaxing change of pace yeah yeah for sure it's uh it's kind of cool that you have that dynamic of being able to kind of do whitetails for a living but fish uh you know kind of get still have that outdoor aspect of vacation time you know or whatever mm-hmm. that, that rest and relaxation um yeah so your youtube channel has some pretty interesting stuff on it. I am a big YouTube watcher and I I think I saw a video where you were talking about roadkill and using that to yeah, understand yeah. whitetail travel patterns. That's pretty interesting. Can you kind of ex- explain yeah. that a little bit? And if you know listeners out there if you think about it, there's always those places in your neighborhood, your city, your county where you see deer hit on the road. And there's a reason they're they're always crossing um, based on funnels, fence rows, food sources, bedding areas, and especially now where we can get a drone and fly over the top, where you can easily look at Google aerial photos and, and get a lot of detail. Um, there's a reason why they're crossing, and I think you can directly relate that to whether you're hunting on public land or even how you're setting up your properties on private land, as far as how deer move and where they uh, typically move. And a lot of it just boils down to habitat change habitat lines and you know wanting to eat in point b and travel from bedding in point a Mm -hmm. and so trying to go back and forth but yeah i i like that and so that's what i've always done and driving up and down i-75 in michigan or over uh into uh wisconsin and down you know anywhere i drive for clients it's always interesting to see when you see a roadkill you know look around a little bit and just kind of pay attention and see why that deer was killed there not just that's a deer dead deer on the side of the road I yeah. think sometimes they can paint a little picture uh, yeah. a little better picture man i eat that stuff up like anything that's that's different than what you 
have seen or heard over and over again, whether it be reading in an article or uh, in a magazine or on a podcast. I mean, some of some of the things that we hear, it's almost like just a regurgitation of something that's been happening or being told for the last 20 years or whatever. And I love right. stuff like that. That's just out of the box thinking. I feel like that that's a great way to be like to be in general, but then also that's a great way to be a successful hunter is to kind of think out of the box and realize things that uh, your normal hunter may not realize. Yeah. I think sometimes you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're looking at that, uh, you know, a deer does a certain thing. And we know that, um, but then you always have to ask why. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask why is when you start to really learn. Yeah, yeah. Not not just accepting that a whitetail does this, travels to food in the evening. Why does he do that? Right. And um, or or beds a uh, mature buck beds in a remote location. Why does he Why does he not bed with the doe family groups? And and why? Mm-hmm. And then and then you can learn a lot about whitetails by just asking that that simple question. Mm-hmm. Um. So you do own a piece of property, and that's in Michigan, I guess, or? I owned at one time 260 acres in Michigan. Okay. Right now, I lease three parcels in southwest Wisconsin. Okay. So I don't own any land right now, but I have private land that I work on, you know, quite a bit, depending on which one, you know, which landowner um, in southwest Wisconsin. So that allows me to get a lot of, and I had a lease before that for 12 years in Wisconsin before these three that I have. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been hunting there for this will be the seventeenth season coming up on private land. Down wow, there. that's cool. That's cool. It's nice to have that history. Um, so you're going to hunt public land this year, though. Am I correct? Yeah, for the last six years, I've hunted public land in Ohio. I really want to go back to my roots in Michigan. Um, I love some of my northern areas uh, where I've hunted, where you're walking out 45 minutes to an hour out in the swamps. Um, I hunted Pennsylvania public land for 17 years. I always think about going back there too. And, uh, and so I don't know where I'll end up on public land, but that's the beauty of public land is, um, you can basically, you know, private land is a lot of work. Um, you know, if you're doing it right, putting your land together, you're trying to condense hundreds of acres, sometimes thousands of acres into a couple hundred acre down to a 20 acre package, you know, trying to really fit a lot and make that parcel seem a lot larger, but on public land, you just show up Mm -hmm. and might, might uh, require a lot of boot time, but. I, and that's so I will hunt public land somewhere this year and, um, just haven't decided fully, uh, where yet. Yeah. Where's, what's the uh, drive to go hunt in Pennsylvania like you have? Uh, Pennsylvania is about 10, uh, 11 hours right around there mm-hmm. for me, um, to get over into that area. It's, I hunt in the Northeast area up in the hills, uh, pretty close to New York. In fact, we drop, uh, go through New York and then drop down, mm-hmm. uh, just into New York, maybe an hour and a half and yeah. then drop down to the South. So, so what's the, I mean, do you have a, a reason that you hunt there though? Is that, uh, you know, is it the challenge, the amount of deer? What is, what's the reason you keep going over there? My, uh, um, Michelle is my first wife and we, um, married 93 and I started hunting with her family right off the bat. And so I hunted there for 17 years and it was an annual, you know, we hunted in the same cabin. I hunted, I brought friends with me sometime. My brother hunted with me. And sometimes there were up to 18 guys in camp. And so they had a rich history there where they actually shot their 200th whitetail or 200th buck. I think it was back in 2007, right around there. Wow. Um, they had a long history of hunting there for over 40 years. Wow. And, 
they really liked hunting in the in the hills of Pennsylvania and the mm-hmm. public land, and and so that's what got me started there, and I and I really love it out mm-hmm. there, and so it's kind of like I miss some of those interior benches and points and uh, kind of that mid level elevation that you go all the way back for walking 700 feet in elevation, drop back down the backside. And those are some of my favorite areas to hunt, kind of a rural remote area. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I we don't have a ton of elevation here. Um, <laughs> And most of the places that I've hunted, we haven't had a ton of elevation change unless it's uh, elk in Colorado or New Mexico. And so Mm -hmm. it's a, that's a, it's an interesting thing to me because, um, I feel like that wind is so unpredictable there in some of those places and, or at least it would be for me, that would be intimidating. It is. And and so I started kind of cutting my teeth teeth on that in 93 and then of course where I hunt in, in Wisconsin, there's about 500 foot changes in, ele- in elevation. So pretty big changes. In fact, some of the stands I go to right now are a half hour plus, um, you know, and you walk uphill the entire time to get get there. So I really get in shape during the hunting season. I'm a little out of, out of shape right now. But um, <laughs> it, it really, what's great about hills is they, to me, what I've seen anywhere is that hills, given the same number of hunters and similar percentages of cover versus ag land um, or woods that hills help push up the buck age structure they help hide bucks they help separate hunters so you're not hunting in all in one location um, they help produce more habitat because a lot of times you can't plant on the steep faces and sides and interior benches points draws and so you get some increases in cover but really, um, and then those winds, what I like about hills is you can cheat the wind. You can't cheat the wind on flat ground. If it's coming out of the northwest, whipping through a woodlot, it's going to be northwest. And then the only exception might be a heavy line of conifer or something that might steer it like a berm. But, um, but other than that, in, in hill country, you can actually cheat the wind. You know, you can, you can play a lot of games with the wind, and I, I really enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. So are you looking for, like, say, specific saddles or... I guess hills that jut out into a bottom or whatever that uh, allow you to cheat the wind like that. Yeah, there's there's several things that happen. Is um, in the morning and in, in probably right around seventy five percent of my my you know top twenty five bucks. Let's say I've been shot in the morning. Really. And the thing about in the morning is it allows you to um, hunt high. And as long as those whitetails are below you, generally you're safe because the thermals are always going up in the morning. And you're getting a strong lift in the morning too, all the way, as long as those temperatures are changing, the, the you know, thermals are going up. And so that's why I hike a lot of times up high and, you know, I wait till pre-rut rut to do that. And you're basically getting on top of whitetails that are down in ag land or food plots, hundreds of yards below, sometimes a half mile. And you're waiting for those deer to come back up to you in those bedding areas. And in, in, and if you're down low, it makes it pretty tough because that wind swirls. So then I hunt on the outside of points with uh, good wind flow from either side where I can predict where my wind's going to fall in the evening and blow until it falls. Um, and so a lot of times I'm hunting on the outside of points low and, and then I'm hunting high on benches, points, you know, wherever the the deer movement dictates uh up high mm-hmm. does the, the morning does the barometer affect uh how strong those thermals are um i haven't found that it does other than 
the barometer, um, you know, usually when the barometer is low, for example, there's a lot of other things going on that mm-hmm. will affect it. You know, for example, east winds are a lot light, lighter. So sometimes you find that east wind or no wind with, an, with a, an approaching front or one that's just coming through and it's really calm keeps those thermals down and there's not a real big change in the morning hours that you would expect. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm hunting a lot of high pressure days and the barometric pressure would be high. And then you're getting a lot of good lift, but you're getting a lot of good whitetail movement then, it seems like, in that cleaner, colder air on the backside of a front. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, you know, I'm not sure if it's exactly the factor of the barometric pressure or a combination of the rain, the dew point, everything else that's that's going on at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, you do see some correlations with that. Mm-hmm. And it's cool because, uh, you know, we all hear about high barometer means good deer movement anyway. So it's good whenever, right. you know, it also plays in your favor as far as wind goes we have a stand you know we don't have a lot of terrain change here but every little bit counts and uh there's a place where the you know if you've got a solid north wind it can kind of come across an opening and then it hits about a i don't know what do you say 12 foot of elevation change right there yeah maybe not even that but it's just enough Mm -hmm. to kind of kick it up and then on a high barometer day we can sit in in our stand release a milkweed pod and it goes mm-hmm. straight up in there, and yeah, I mean, that's just pretty cool. Straight up, and it's like can, it's like hitting a jump. Yeah, it's so cool because deer that are downwind just walk right by, not even you know think that we're there. And it's it's neat how uh, you can find those kind of places, but it takes a ton of uh, work, or in our case, just some luck because that was the only tree <laughs> to put a stand in at that point, yeah. and it worked out well. But yeah. earlier, you talked about you know. Um, how it might take a lot of boot time or whatever to figure out some places like this. Um, and I was going to ask, you know, what's your strategy when you do pull up to a place? It sounds like, you know, you put a lot of weight on what you can see and find out from the ground there. Well, it's boot time, meaning like, uh, you know, we're in the north in the UP where I used to hunt. There was a huge percentage of tag alder swamp marsh where there was not a lot of deer movement, mm-hmm. uh, not a lot of daytime holding cover. And then you had a high percentage of spruce swamp, which has zero food in it. Mm-hmm. And, and then you had a high percentage in the upland areas of mature timber that was federal land. And, so, and, and that didn't contain a lot of deer either. So you really, what I would do is I'd take a large area like that, especially when I first started hunting it, and I'd X out all the big common areas. So you'd take out the tag alder, take out the the um, hardwoods take out the spruce stands and then you check all those lines in between so where all those habitat features met mm-hmm. or meet so you have change in elevation um, change in habitat type and in a lot of those areas where you have multiple habitat features rivers if you add in there are creeks uh, beaver ponds then that's where food sources would take shape because it was the most diverse area of habitat with a lot of habitat features coming together so basically you could x out 95 percent of all the acres and then it might be that you're checking that spot a half mile over there that one three quarters of a mile over there that one a mile back but you're really just xing out a lot of the habitat mm-hmm. um, that really didn't look attractive and you're trying to find as many features coming together in one spot and then just purely scouting those areas and you'd, and you'd see a relationship you'd see old you know, I was looking for old signs. You know, old signs almost better than new sign. If it's one rub just from this year, um, even though it looks like a nice rub, it's not as valuable as going into an area where you think there's a nice funnel, and then you go in there and you find 30 old rubs that, that extend back for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. That's a valuable area. 
Mm-hmm. So that's, and you're really trying to eliminate a lot of acres at one time. So do you, do you ever hunt small tracks for of public? Um, I used to growing up and that was down in the, uh, Pontiac Clarkston area of lower Michigan. Mm-hmm. And they were all, I mean, sometimes you're hunting behind someone's house. Mm-hmm. It was just a small public land tract um, that a lot of people were hunting. And and I enjoyed hunting those. One was Pontiac Lake Recreation Area. And mm-hmm. it's not like I'm going to draw a magnet of people there because anybody that's down in that area, there's millions of people. And they're, you know, if you're hunters, you probably hunted out that way at some point or if you've hunted public land. But mm-hmm. I really enjoyed hunting those places. And, yeah. and one of my favorite tactics was I hunted behind houses a lot. And so I'd find areas where you could get in. There's lots of subdivisions around or dead end streets. And you find someone that you know on one of those dead end streets that you could access behind their land and get into areas that other people had to walk three quarters of a mile or a half mile to get into. And then at the same time, you found that a lot of those um, backyards were full of ornamental shrubs or gardens or flowering trees bushes whatever it might have been that attracted deer every single night apple yeah. trees um crab apple trees and so i hunted a lot of movements on and out of uh private lands on the public land mm-hmm. so i mean you know I, I was doing some map scouting last night actually and when i was looking you know when you when you look um uh, say you're going to go out of state or even in state and you start looking and i have um casey and i use the onyx mapping system quite a bit and so you've got like mm-hmm. you can yeah. see a lot of public when you look in a wide view at a state um whether it's big or small how are you narrowing down the actual pieces that you want to really go in and and boot scout that's uh yeah that's a good question because you do look at 10,000 acres you can narrow down the habitat now what I'm also doing is I'm looking for blocks of timber that are away from roads. And so when I hunted down in Ohio, uh, where I chose to hunt down there was basically I chose those areas. And I can tell you a um, mistake I made down there like that, too. But um, I chose areas. The one was uh, four by six miles. And I, I can honestly say that in six years, I actually hunted there in that location for four so those four years, I, I saw another hunter one time back. You know, I'd walk in 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, that's cool. And it's just pure walk. And so you had the place to yourself. But the mistake I made was that down in that area, and I capitalized on it two years ago, and it kind of hurt me last year, the same thing, was that um, when we first hunted that area six, seven years ago, there, there were somewhat young clear cuts. They were two, three, four years old. And that was like the optimum time to see deer numbers. We saw 25 in one day. I, I personally saw 25 in one day. And as the years went by, um, you saw fewer and fewer deer to the point there was hardly any. And it was just because those deer migrate to the fresh clear cuts. Uh, two years ago, I hunted by a couple semi-fresh clear cuts. They were probably in that three, four-year-old range and, uh, and shot a nice buck. We had probably about eight to ten shooters on camera um over four cameras in a, in a given area and then last year hunting there um i had a friend telling me that he was seeing the same buck three miles away that we had on camera all fall the year before and it, and it was right adjacent to fresh clear cuts that were only huh. a year old and so you know i i know that now it's kind of you know they they hunt they move to the fresh food. So if you have big public land tracks that have roast rotational cuttings in the timber, say a state parcel, then, um, you know, I really like looking for one remote areas that I can get in and, and you know, 
have a place kind of to myself, but then also getting in near those clear cuts or food sources if those are present in the area is really important. Or in the case of where I hunted up north in the wilderness swamps of Michigan, I was looking for those habitat changes because there were zero cuttings out there. So mm-hmm. it really narrowed it down where, where deer were actually at. So. Mm-hmm. How long would you figure that the process of narrowing down properties takes and then maybe the process of understanding if that property is something you want to hunt after putting some boots on it i think that the biggest thing it it doesn't take a lot of time by air if you're looking at aerial folds or or aerial (coughs) uh, maps and you're looking at roads and road access um, you're looking for remote areas you know that in itself narrows down the parcels but in the case of ohio where we're hunting with the clear cuts you have to throw into those one to three year old clear cuts and kind of X out everything else too. And so by the time you do that, you could take, you know, a state public land area that's 65,000 acres and narrow it down to 500 to a thousand acres of land that you want to go take a look at. So then it's a matter of getting into that area and seeing if there's actually deer sign and um, seeing, especially if, you know, if it's two, three year old clear cut, seeing what kind of signs around, how you can get in and out. Uh, some of the topo map areas don't relate directly to the new clear cuts, so you're not sure you might get into an area and it's this the flat area that you want to hunt or bench is just a big clear cut and you can hardly get in there. It just gets so thick by year five or six that you can't walk through it. Mm-hmm. And so, but yeah, you're um, you really, you know, you really need to put that formula um, in play, x out as many acres as that you can that are common habitat that's that's all the same it's all mature there's not a potential food big pine thickets and then it actually takes that time to get there and and i would say honestly it it really isn't something that takes weeks and weeks um like you're if you're going to do that in a northern setting in the upper midwest or you're going down to a state like ohio or indiana on public land um i think that you could spend a couple weekends you know all day saturday maybe part of sunday or part of friday and, and after a couple of weekends, have a really good game plan of what's going on if you stick to the script. You don't get misled by, you know, a bunch of signs just a quarter mile from a road that, um, you know, a lot of people are going to be hitting once it gets to deer season because mm-hmm. you could be really, really disappointed. Mm-hmm. Sure. So on those clear cuts that you were talking about, um, yeah. you know, we live or not really live, but we, we have opportunity to hunt areas like timber harvest areas and stuff like that. Uh, you know, much of the the South has that as well as you know up in the yeah. you know far northern reaches. But uh, a lot of clear cuts are just big squares taken out of mature timber. So there's not a right. lot of variation in the edging edges or you know defined habitat features involved with them. So you know I understand that they're huge you know food sources for a whitetail. But right. how do you go about actually hunting a clear cut minus just setting up on the edge and hoping one walks by? I guess it really depends on what's going on the outside of that, too. You know, if it's all the same for miles, that's one thing. Um, But there's got to be some change within there, whether it's just even a 10-foot change in topography, Mm -hmm. um, a small creek a half mile away, um, something that you're looking for not just in the two to 300 yards that surround that clear cut, but what's a half mile away and what's three-quarters of a mile away. Because you find in big areas like that, and I see this in the UP of Michigan where you have big timbered areas, the deer typically, um, you know, so let's say it's 50-50 ag and you're in southern Wisconsin, southern Michigan, um, central Indiana, 
uh, central Illinois, Iowa, you might find that a day a daylight movement of deer might boil down to two to four hundred yards, where you have does that are sandwiched up against food source if there's food sources if there's cover, and then behind that somewhere are medium age bucks and then you have mature bucks that are further in remote areas. It's just what they choose, and that whole movement from buck bedding to a food source might be two to 400 yards. I find you get in those remote areas and it could be even a big wooded area in Pennsylvania or Kentucky. But when you get up north and it could be in uh, um, the state of Texas too, that those movements could be more narrowed down to three quarters of a mile to a mile Mm. where it's not just that you can't sandwich the deer used to space. They take the space in Northern Ohio. I've been on a client property where there's, client has 26 acres the neighbor has 20 acres and between that the two of them they have the most acreage within two miles in any direction it's just all open flat ag so in those cases you have 40 deer sometimes they're sandwiched into a 20 acre parcel Mm -hmm. and where you couldn't do that even if you had great habitat uh, bedding area work food plots you couldn't do that in northern michigan for example Mm -hmm. Um, those deer just are used to moving a lot more not being uh you know really pounded on top of each other in a, in a cramped space. Yeah. You know, Jeff, I've, for many years of my life, I've been wondering what advantage we have over the ag-laden Midwest. And I finally found it now that you've told me. It's because <laughs> the deer move further in daylight. There, there actually is something, so that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It's, it's The problem is it's more of a needle on a haystack sometimes, but yeah, I, I think it helps protect deer. Mm-hmm. and uh, advance them to the next age class. And, and it can spread out your hunting opportunity, too. You're not just honing on this little 20, 40-acre personal. Sure, yeah. And Tyler and I talk about that all the time. Like, since we're public, in, public land hunters for the most part, like, yeah, it's kind of tough, and we can't put up feeders, or we can't plant food plots, or what have you, do a lot of habitat improvements. But with the thing that we do have going in our advantage is the fact that we can cover a deer's whole home range if we want to and really try to figure that out that buck. There's a lot of right. people who don't have that advantage on their small private parcel or their, you know, their ag field yeah. or whatever it is, you know? That's pretty, yeah, that's a great observation because, boy, it's a lot of fun when you go into big public land tract and kind of think that, you know, they're feeding over here, they're bedding over here, they're moving in between or they have multiple beds and you can try to figure out the whole scenario and if it's remote enough, you don't have a lot of um, hunter uh, influence. And I've, I've seen, though, there's boys some really good bucks down in the Arkansas area. I've been down to Arkansas for clients and seen it down there. So there's, I can't tell you how many clients of mine have land adjacent to, right next to, or in close proximity to public land. And mm-hmm. It's amazing the deer they're out in some. I would never go back and hunt those areas by those clients and dishonor that relationship but at the same time there's some really good deer on public land that i could bring people right to that are right next to private land parcels cool. so when people say they don't have hunting areas i always kind of shake my head because if you want to drive a couple hours there's a good piece of public land somewhere sure yeah in and some direction so we'll talk later off there about that other <laughs> part there but. yeah oh yeah sure yeah <laughs> yeah well uh I just just get your pen and paper and number it i'll, I'll list them out for you yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah yeah so um you know and that's one of the cool things about it though is that it's just a big track of land you know and you have the opportunity to roam and it and quite honestly like you said it's just enjoyable to know that i have the opportunity to target this buck at every aspect of his life you know right but you have to figure out how to how to actually accomplish that and sometimes it's really tough because for instance a guy with a, a private parcel 
might have, you know, uh, an, a clearing, you know, whether it's clear cut, ag, whatever, CRP field, and have, you know, a finger of timber that just runs right through it. Just the, the standard funnel pinch that you right. know, everybody hopes to have, be able to hunt during the rut, right? And they yeah. can do that. You find that on a public 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 piece, most of the time there's going to be three old deer stands, a couple trail cameras, and some flagging tape there. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah. So it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yes, people kill deer there every in a place like that every year, but you have to be good. If you want to be successful, you have to be good at finding the funnels that you can't see from an aerial or that right. are very hard to see from an aerial. Uh, so do right, you have, or hard to get to. Yes, yeah, that's true too. You know, mm-hmm. on that that what'd you say, uh, four by six earlier. I'm sure you, that that scenario can be played out there. But what strategies right. do you have, or what type of funnels um, are not so apparent or really hard to see from an aerial that maybe you might even have to get you know your boots dirty to find? Well, and see that that boils down to because I've hunted tracks that are all the same. Mm-hmm. So it's basically there's no definition of habitat. Uh, it's just rolling topography, maybe big hardwoods, and um, and then it boils down to you're kind of trying to slot yourself in in between the hunting access points. So I like to go find the remote areas in between, and and it almost you're almost looking for other hunting locations. So I really like looking for like for example, when I get out of my car in the UP, I would be very very careful um, at what direction I went for crushing ferns. Like I, I'd really try to slip through the ferns. I didn't like breaking any ferns because anybody that went to that spot could tell where I went. I didn't leave any flagging ribbon. And so I'm looking at that stuff for everyone else. And so that's one of the things I'd scout in the off season was where am I finding old blinds? Um, where am I finding old hunter access routes, crushed ferns, boot prints. I, there's, I've made uh, sand traps. So let's say you uh, cross a beaver dam in the up of michigan and then you're getting into a big patch of spruce i'd make some sand traps just to tell me which way people went and then by by that you can tell kind of like is this you know is this a father and son hunting back there a husband and wife you look at boot prints so i love looking at boot prints in in that case and you're basically just trying to tell you know without it being during the season where people are scouting where they've been before and then you're narrowing down the pockets where people aren't. So I'm not one that's ever hunted someone else's blind location. I, I'm more the type, I see a blind that someone might be hunting or a location they had a tree stand on and they cut some tree, uh, limbs down, and I just go the opposite direction. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm constantly looking for a spot that is untouched. Kind of going back to that principle of hunting pressure is the lowest hole in the bucket. And if I can find a spot where everything else being equal um, doesn't ha- has the least amount of hunting pressure, then I'm going to find uh, a pocket of really good deer hunting, regardless of if, if the habitat's all the same everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. So can you explain the sand trap thing a little bit more? Because I don't know if I've ever heard that, and it sounds very intriguing. So one of the things I love doing is making mock scrapes for deer. Mm-hmm. And, and the deer that's coming through, um, you can tell sometimes there's a broken hoof, um, you know, broken toe, and you can tell that particular buck a size of a track that you see over and over again. Um, you might see even a rotation of them. So, so I love doing that with whitetails, but at the same time with people, um, I've had areas where, you know, again, I cross a beaver dam and I make a sand trap this way or that way, just so that when they get out, out of that constriction, and let's say you're crossing a creek somewhere, you're coming down a road and then you're going down a point. And by keeping an open surface of sand or exposed soil, 
for someone to step in, then you can actually see, you know, you might go into a location like that. It's loaded with footprints, you know, people. And, and you, and you go down to your trail camera and camera that's, you know, in your stand location that's still there. And it explains a lot of why there's no deer in the area because someone's been hunting it over and over again. Mm-hmm. So you're basically, it's one more tactic to try to um, keep an eye on who's hunting in the area. No different than um, driving over to your, around the block, around the neighborhood to see who's, you know, which weekend hunters up in the, in visiting their cabin on that parcel and that's hunting for the weekend that you could maybe cheat to that side of the parcel knowing that a buck only comes over to your area when the neighbors are on their land hunting for that weekend. You know, mm-hmm. it might be Saturday, Sunday afternoon. So really it's your, giving your ability to uh, look at tracks in a, in a spot where you otherwise wouldn't be able to see any tracks going out into the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, kind of hunting people. Right. Yeah. A little yeah. bit, you know, just keeping tabs on them. <laughs> so, most most dangerous again, game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which again goes back to, you know, you're you're trying to find an area that has the least amount of hunt, hunter impact and hunter pressure. You find those little pockets where everything else is is um, even as far as habitat goes, and um, I think you really tilt the odds in your favor. Mm-hmm. How long does pressure affect an area in your experience? You know, I go to a lot of client properties, and this could extend to public land, I believe too. But you know, I have clients that tell me they just saw a diminishing uh, deer herd, you know, the season opens October 1st, they have a couple good hunts, it gets into gun season in the middle of November. By the time they get into muzzleloader in December, they're not seeing a deer. And then we're out there in the end of February, and not only do we see dozens of um, beds, but we see fresh rubs, we see deer hair, lots of pellets, and we actually push deer off the property. And I feel like there's a, a three to four week of, for, of forgiveness where um, deer will forget your intrusions after three, four weeks, or it doesn't really have much of an impact. But um, the problem is, is that especially on private land, uh, hunters are hitting their land every weekend, every other weekend. And there's just, it never gets to a point where the deer can experience those weeks of forgiveness where you haven't been on the property. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, the month after you, you know, the season ends, there's deer out there. And I think that that happens on public land. And so that being said, if I have a great area that I want to hunt for the rut on public land and I know there's someone going in there hunting, I just, I go to one of my other spots because mm-hmm. I look at it like we really don't have enough time for that to settle down. And public land's a little different though, because sometimes there's some really hot saddles or points, um, con- uh, basically funnels that you could sit in almost every day. And because the deer are used to moving over such a large area with a lot of woods, um, yeah, that, that might be spooked out for a buck here, a buck there over a three or four day, day period if someone's hunting there, but you always have that next buck that might be coming from a mile away. Um, that's none the wiser, doesn't know there's any, been any intrusion because he's got such a large home range during the daylight, uh, compared to that small 40 to 80 to 120 acre parcel that can be buggered out, mm-hmm. you know, for a month at a time. And, and they're not going to be on that, that parcel during the daylight. Mm-hmm. I was kind of interested because we have a spot on public that we have hunted in the last couple of years. And uh, in 2016, it was covered up with bucks, had a lot of bucks. We didn't have cameras in there until November. Um, it had a ton of bucks on it. And then um, we hunted it quite a bit and it kind of had um, kind of a lull towards the end of the year. We weren't seeing as much deer movement. And then... Um, that summer, which was last summer, we put trail cameras up and there were bucks back in there like crazy, good bucks. 
and mm-hmm. then we hunted it this year a few times and in november we had a couple of different groups of people move in at different times and they always came in on the wrong wind they basically walked in downwind and mm-hmm. um we really saw the movement suffer on our trail cameras in the end of the year. And so I was assuming that deer would this summer would move back in there. And we haven't really seen, we've got decent amount of does in there moving through, but yeah, we don't have the bucks moving in there like they, like they were. And so I just was interesting. interested. Yeah. Well, in one of the things too, like I see that they, they do like, I have clients all the time. I have clients with dirt bike tracks, horse riding trails, things like that. And they, um, they do really well. My turn key partner, Ross, he goes to a lot of properties and cuts, puts water holes in, switchgrass, whatever. And they, um, you know, I have people like that that are working on their lands from January to August. And then they stay off them and then have a great hunt. Um, so I don't really see that a lot of times where you're hunting here and it's pushing. But what I do see is like summer food sources change a lot. And so mm-hmm. if you don't have summer food sources adjacent to those same areas you saw them in the past, then those summer food sources a lot of times drive, drive the deer. And the same with fall, you know, like I'm seeing on public land where, you know, it's great hunting this year. And then we see 10 different shooter bucks or eight. And then the next year you're getting a picture of one. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's just, it wasn't, I don't feel it was the people. I feel it was the, the habitat change. So those clear cuts have moved and just brought the deer, you know, to a different location. Right. Not to mention the, the hunting pressure does make a big difference, but in an area like that, you could use you know, the deer just get bumped around. You can go a half mile over here and they're fine. Or this half mile, there's a core area where there's, there's really no hunting pressure, but mm-hmm. you know, I find they, they're just gone. Yeah. You know, it's probably food related. That was kind of my next question was, you know, how far does a buck t- tim- or typically move in like heavy timber or heavy cover? And what I see is they move a lot more during the daylight. They're willing to move a lot more in the daylight to go to get from high quality bedding, and, and typically on public land because um, a lot of times on public land it's not that well managed as far as that there's clear cuts every everywhere and there's hardwood regeneration everywhere. Um, that there's a diversity of habitat or that there's a lot of edge. So whitetails are willing to move a, lo- a great distance. I, I had a buck I was after. I think it was 2011. It was a real big eight point out on public land. Nice mature buck. Um, ended up being close to 150 inches for an eight point. So it was a big, you know, big antler buck. But he was. I had uh, hunters that I know and shared trail cam photos with me. They're getting pictures of them on the on their bait piles between midnight to four in the morning, and then I'm. I'm seeing them and then shooting them a couple days later at 10 in the morning, um, approximately a mile away. And I was out in his bedroom there and that's near, it's almost like a barbell. He's out there. And then a mile away at night, he's going and hitting all those bait piles out on uh, public land. Wow. And I was on public land in that case too. And I, I went in a completely different direction than those guys did. They came in the front side. I went all the way around to the backside and I had to walk a long ways in try not to, you know, try to keep uh keep them from knowing there's a trail coming in but in that case they were moving that buck was probably moving i would guess in that three-quarter mile to a mile and a quarter range every single day wow going from his interior bedding where there's no people hunting and then going back out to the bed uh, the food sources at night where there's a lot of hunting pressure um and that's man that's really really good info right there um you know i have for the last 18 months or so known about a buck 
and he's no, you know, I, you and I talked earlier and we don't chase yeah. monster deer in relativity to some of these other people that are hunting in maybe the Midwest and such, but uh, yeah. this is a nice deer for our area. And, um, last year we hunted for him quite a bit. Um, he lives on a public piece during the fall and the winter, the last two years we've seen him. Um, in the summer, we had some issues finding him last summer, so we don't have any pictures of him last summer. And then up until this point, we don't have any pictures of him this summer. Um, but I have daytime pics of him, like, all over the property, um, which is about two square miles. And mm-hmm. um, despite, like, never having any pictures of him during March and o- Octo- or March through October, um, I think he still lives on the property during the summer. Um uh, he's all over the place in the winter moving cruising for does i mean mm-hmm. you got any tips on how i find this deer before october or just at least better yet how do i kill him you know this season <laughs> yeah and i think uh one one thing first off for the summertime it doesn't from what i've experienced unless they get bumped deer really don't move a lot during the summertime they they really kind of shack up next to their their favorite summer food source they find especially a buck a big area with open airflow they they don't want to crash their velvet through a bunch of heavy thick regenerated timber that they would during the fall so a lot of times they need their habitat requirements are a lot different than they need during the fall versus summer and so but on the other hand they really love to hit i don't know if you guys can use mineral licks down there we can't um okay yeah we can't in uh wisconsin where i hunt too but that really water holes and mineral licks are great places to find them during the summertime mm-hmm. and again kind of thinking that you're looking for areas that really aren't as thick as they would use during the fall yeah it's it's thick bottom land like a lot of public is there are definitely open areas um but um you know i i guess one this is another thing that kind of perplexes me but um you know in in the eastern half of texas we have lots of creeks and you know stock tanks and all this kind of stuff that mm-hmm. you know a lot of water sources um yeah lakes rivers whatever so how do i target that water during the summer you know right. I, how, how do i know that he's going to drink from this little pond or whatever as opposed to that big creek or river Definitely. system you know yeah and, it, and so that's kind of a, a non-factor too one one of the things i really like um during the actual hunting season with an individual buck is using trail cameras um, just to figure out his direction that he's coming from. And I, and I basically, now you're getting a lot of daytime pictures. So I consider that he's probably betting fairly close. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, he might move a half mile or a quarter mile, but once you narrow down the direction he's coming from and you assume that he's, if you're seeing him at this point going into this food source in the evening and he's, you know, an hour before dark, um, you can kind of, to me, narrow down a pretty close proximity to his bedding area. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I'm doing is the bedding areas are the most critical location that you can discover for a whitetail. And, and I'm looking at just, I don't care the actual bed he's in. I'm, I care more about he's in this five-acre area, this 20-acre area, because then I can go set up a, set up on him in the morning and wait for that buck to come back to me in that exact location and then get a shot at him. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, there might be a potential of a lot of different bedding areas, but um, you know, there's bucks that are just coming in after dark that are nocturnal. And I have a lot of clients and I hear from a lot of hunters where 
they're setting up on that buck in late October looking for a pre-rut in the Midwest. And that buck is coming in the middle of the night, and he's telling you he's a mile away. And mm-hmm. so he's got his does with him over there. He's not going to be to your land until um, he breeds a couple over there over about a week period of time or a 10-day period of time, and then he's going to come over. So he's kind of been telling you, and you don't get a lot of pictures of him that way too. So that's that buck that you only hunt till the, you know, in the middle of the rut after he's bred a couple does in his own area, and he's going to wander a long ways. Mm-hmm. And I know your rut is spread out a lot more. Um, yes. down there mm-hmm. and and so it's a little bit different there but um really working on those bedding areas and trying to find a direction he's coming into either by rubs scrapes sign that mm-hmm. you think is his because it's popping up in the same area every year and you've seen him in that area um or you're using trail cameras in combination with the sign too mm-hmm. um you know it's kind of like i know i know hunters that don't use trail cameras on their private land because they don't want to spook deer and to me it's it, you have such an unfair advantage over someone that, you know, I, I'd love for all my neighbors to please not use trail cameras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be the perfect scenario because they can give you so much Intel yep. as far as if that's a non-core buck and he's hanging in a half a mile away, mm. he's a core buck and he's within a couple hundred yards, 300 yards of your food sources every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, they tell you direction. Um, a lot of times if you have 80 to 120 acres and you're just using six or eight cameras around the outside of that parcel, you can, you're really learning a lot about the bucks that are moving on and off your property, where they're coming from and how close they are. Yeah. So, I, I didn't really explain this very well, but a lot of the, the daytime pictures we have are during, well, not necessarily during our rut, but he's definitely following or cruising for does, I feel like, in these pictures. Right. Um, so during the fall and winter months. And um, they are sometimes, like, far from each other <laughs> so like yeah he, and during the same day well you know like it seems like he'll stay in an area for two or three days and then mm-hmm. um you know like when we checked uh in just postseason like Jan- or i guess february we checked our cameras in that area and he would be in this area for like january so i'm just making stuff up but january 8th and 9th and then you would see him uh a day later on a camera you know say to the north uh 600 yards or so and maybe maybe even more than that and he's he's up there um for two days or three days and then he would be way over to the east for a couple days after that you know and it was just weird it it was making it really really hard to put a pattern on him or to even that's pretty cool you do you see that same pattern from uh south to north to east or direction because a lot of times um what i found in in uh like the big wilderness settings is that during the rut mature box will cruise uh known doe family group areas this is so they're why just going I'm from one to the, <laughs> they're is... going from one to the next to the next that's so kind of like you know and it's kind of like you get pictures in one you get all excited but he's he's already been there mm-hmm. he might be there for three or four days and then he's moving three quarters of a mile over there to, to scan that doe family group mm-hmm. so it's almost like you see him here, you hunt over there waiting for him to come to you. And you and because a lot of times in those big wilderness areas, the doe family groups are scattered. Yeah. A little pocket here, a little pocket there. He's trying to kind of hit <clears throat> hit the doe family groups for a couple of days and he's got you think he particular he could have a particular like route that he runs throughout the rut. I definitely feel that way. And especially when you don't have hunter interference in between. Mm-hmm. Where he's hitting this location, he can freely go to that situation or that location over there and then come back and and you know i think he's still 
would have when he's calm, when he's wore out, um, when he's in between, you know, um, the rut periods. Like we have a pretty solid uh, early November rut uh, to mid-November, and then we have a, a smaller that would be, you know, 15% in early December. Well, in between that time, I think he goes back home. And the end of October, he's at home. But then mm. you see him during those those uh, rut periods where he's cruising from woodlot to woodlot. And I think he just knows where those are, and he, he goes and checks them out. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's that's a really good advice. Um, I've been posing this question to the last few guests, a similar question, you know, kind of like, how do I – and I know it's so vague because, you yeah. know, we're not, we're not uh, talking to mostly – we're not talking to people that are – have familiar with where we hunt and this and that so it's it's you know property specific but uh that's really good advice i'm literally cannot wait uh, (laughs) not to be rude but to get off this phone call and start looking at my pictures (laughs) and try to put a pattern together so yeah because you know what's interesting this is something that i've shot about half of my oldest box most mature box where they give you just a handful of pictures over a two or three year uh two or three year period of time and they're, they're obviously living on someone else's property. And it's kind of like if you look at those pictures, he's telling you when he's going to be there next. You know, they, it's not to the date, but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we get into that mid-rut period of time in November. And I'm hunting a buck that's from a mile away. And I, I know the direction. You can look at the aerial photos. He's over that way. You might even see him that way during the summertime. And you might even have friends telling you that they're seeing him often, you know, during close to daylight. And then you, you come to this rut window, let's say, in our area, November 2nd to November 15th. And you look at that chunk of time and you look at the weather. Now, there might be several days that are unseasonably warm, 30-mile-an-hour winds. And it's not to say you can't shoot that buck during those days, but you're basically playing poker. And you're saying, these three days out of these 12 days, that's a really good hand. These other days are medium to poor. And so you're really counting on those three days that he's going to be on your property. And if you actually go back, I've done this with a lot of clients, and you look at your weather data, uh, look at historical weather trends, you can see that, you know, in general, there's a lot of deer, a lot of bucks that are shot on really good weather days. And you can look at your own bucks going back. I mean, you can plug in numbers for um, decades going back and, and see when you shoot those. So that pattern, and then you combine that pattern, whether you're, you think he's going in between doe family groups or he's connecting to a food source every single day and you know this is the bedding area he's coming from. But when you put the weather together with and, and you look at those factors, uh, to me it narrows it down where there's sometimes I've shot a buck that's a mile away and I've went and sat in that stand one time and it seems like a needle in the haystack, but it's kind of like he's told you for two or three years that he's going to be there during a good day during this 10 days. Narrowed down, it's only got, you only have one or two or three days that you can shoot him on that he's going to be there it's awesome so you know using the weather and and following those patterns um to me really you know of course your weather's different down there as far as your and it's all relative you know like Mm -hmm. we get a we get unseasonably warm temperatures but let's say we we drop from 75 would be 30 degrees you know above norm and let's say it dropped to 55 which is still 10 degrees above norm during that time of year it's a 20 degree drop Mm-hmm. and there's cold pressure air that came in so i'm gonna hunt those days and you know play my cards on those days and if you you know relate it to whatever patterns of that buck you're after then uh to me you have a really good chance of shooting them mm-hmm. so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be hunting out there just saying i gotta go after this buck every single day you know less is more you're 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 and that's another thing too it's 
wrote an article a few years ago where you can shoot more deer from the couch. And basically <laughs> just saying that, you know, literally, you to me, you burn out your best days by overhunting a land and not being patient to where you have that 10 out of 10 day and opportunity that's come up, but now you've made it a one or a zero out of 10 because you've overhunted it for the week before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, so that, that day, that day just never comes. I don't know if I can hear that enough because I don't think it'll ever go completely through my thick skull, but <laughs> it's, it's just, hard. Yeah. It is tough. And, and honestly, yeah, a lot of the places that we hunt are, uh, one buck counties or only one, uh, large buck over 13 we have antler restrictions in a lot of places right know? so yeah. it's really tough whenever say you've got like this buck that you have a, your heart set on and then it's, it's it's a very tough decision to say okay i'm going to go hunt a different spot and be willing to shoot another deer you know like that's <laughs> yeah. hard to right. tell yourself sometimes <laughs> yeah so yeah and then at the same time you have you know and you know i'm fortunate i can hunt just about any day i want during the season and, you know, of course, most hunters aren't like that. And so mm-hmm. I'm looking at, like, you, you have this opportunity to hunt Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you have that time off, you know, for someone to pull back and wait till Saturday night or Sunday morning and not hunt all day Friday, Saturday morning is really tough to do. Oh, but yeah. that's, to me, you know, I found value when I had to manage my time a little bit more for time off that I found a lot of value that I could find a Wednesday night or a Thursday morning that was much more valuable than that following weekend because the weather was bad. Mm -hmm. So I literally would drive seven hours to hunt uh, Wednesday night in a Thursday morning and go home and not hunt on the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually right there with you. I, I, uh, I have a semi-flexible schedule. I still have to work quite a bit. Semi-flexible, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know what well, I mean. Well, yeah. I'm not saying I don't work, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you know. no, no, <laughs> yeah I, I work around the hunting. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I do construction. I think, you know, as a side note, if if you really want to dedicate, you know, a large portion of your wife, a large portion of your wife. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking of, your wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> large portion trouble, of your yeah. life. Yeah. She, I hope she didn't listen to that part. But, yeah, exactly. you know, if you want to dedicate a large portion of your life, you, you know, and you're serious about this whitetail stuff, like like you really are committed, finding an occupation that allows you to do that has really blessed me, you know, because I'm right there Definitely. where you're talking about. I can, I can work a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon doing construction and, and then be able to hit that cold front on a Thursday when I need to. Right. You know, and that's it, really, that's really important. And, and when you're doing that, you're leaving uh, more time than you traditionally would go hunting for your family. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at like, I'm, yeah, I'm hunting this Wednesday, but at the same time that frees up to do this on Saturday night with, you know, with the spouse and yep. with friends and everything else. So I, I look at like, it's a pretty good, good way to manage, not, you know, keep you from over hunting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and burning out not only your tree stands and your land and the deer you're after, but your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the deer that we're after, but since you've had you know a ton of experience on public land stuff, I wanted to ask you more about um, how many flyers have you shot? How many deer have you never seen, never knew existed? You were hunting other target bucks. But all of a sudden, you know, a deer walks into your life, the only time he's been on that property that you know of, and he's a shooter. How often does that happen for you? That happened a lot in Pennsylvania uh-huh. because, you know, I might go in there and you're, you're, you're hunting by rub and scrape and remote area and your access, everything, but you don't know what that buck looks like. And, and then when one comes through, it's a mature buck, you shoot it as that same buck, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done that in the UP of Michigan, too, where you're going into an area that you know is an outstanding funnel. 
and you, you don't find any sign of people going back there, so you're hunting this core area, you sit there for a day or two and you shoot this really nice buck and you know you never saw him you're just looking for a mature buck and that that happens so much more on public land than private land Mm -hmm. because public land you're just looking for a great funnel and an opportunity to shoot a mature buck where private land um you're looking for more specific bucks and you get to know all the bucks and it's rarely that that you see a flyer Mm -hmm. um i had i saw a flyer last year on private land in wisconsin and he went by in a misty rainy uh, morning it was in the mid 30s and, and misty mm. and so it's one of those where when you took your hands out even just use a camera or anything it was just freezing yeah. and a little wind i'm on top of a knoll i'm actually 400 feet in elevation up and i had a five-year-old go by that i'd never seen before and i just looked at him and didn't really recognize him and kind of i got my bow ready and didn't shoot and then of course we get lots of video and pictures of and, and i honestly should have shot him <laughs> uh, he's a really really nice buck but he, he was a flyer now he will definitely not be a flyer last you know next year uh-huh. but um yeah he was one that i didn't recognize at all and he's had some very unique uh, characteristics that's too. cool and, so what do you think but, it is um, that makes those deer come into existence i think a lot of times they're uh, moving their core fall range based on hunting pressure and lack of food or lack of cover mm-hmm. Now, lack of cover a lot of times has to do with hunting pressure mm-hmm. so they get pushed out and now they come into a friendly area and they stay there and what i see with those bucks and those type of bucks especially on private land and that could happen on public but they they get pushed into an area for lack of food lack of uh, unpressured bedding area or cover daytime cover they get pushed into that area um, or they get bumped around because you have four or five six-year-old bucks in the area and here's a two or three-year-old buck that doesn't quite have a space Sometimes those bucks are the hardest to pattern because who knows where they're going to end up. They get bumped around by older bucks. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden this buck comes in as a three-year-old onto your land. And then as he ages, we had one age to eight where we hunt in Southwest Wisconsin, another one age to seven. And it seemed like the two, those older bucks, the older they got, the more defined they were in their home range. And it was small, you know, Mm -hmm. like that area during the daytime kept them um, safe. And so it's, it's almost like, you know, you see this flyer and all of a sudden that flyer that's two or three years, years old becomes, you know, that resident buck and he just enjoys the fact that he has fall food, fall cover, and it's unpressured. And I think that's how a lot of times you can build a property, a private land property, and, and experience an unfair proportion of harvest of the local mature bucks just because you're offering the one spot that does have true fall cover, true fall food. And most importantly, you're covering the lowest hole in the bucket, which is that unpressured uh, core area where he, a high percentage of land that he can call home and, and get away from all your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. And and I, my hypothesis was that of hunter pressure, too, because we see it on public land a lot, you know, and you almost I can't say this for a fact because I haven't looked at the pictures in a while, but you can almost see it on your trail cameras after a, a big hunting weekend like say you know a november weekend you'll have new bucks pop up because you know people were in in there that weekend moving stuff around you know mucking things up and it it uh it caused them to move into your spot and something we've even noticed is that uh deer you know bucks especially will move into like less than desirable areas because it's the spot where no one's going you know it, it's like a, a marginal crp area or 
you know, something where it's just a little bit of plum thicket right here in the middle of a, of a pasture or something, you know, but it's just the one place that nobody goes. And it doesn't have to be the greatest habitat or the greatest cover, but it is the one hiding spot, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, and that can even like in private land, it can be a pretty small area. And, and like to think about, you know, everyone, you know, most people in the country, they have, you know, neighborhood parks, um, in suburban areas that have really small areas that hold an incredible amount of deer and big giant bucks. And they're simply there because people can't hunt them. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no water holes, bedding areas, food plots, anything. It's just the fact that they're there in this 20 acre little chunk of habitat in the middle of millions of people just because you can't hunt them. Yeah. And that to me underscores, imagine taking that same scenario and you put it on 40 to 80 acres you get a high percentage of that land being efficient and working for you where you're not producing your hunting pressure during the hunting season and you're letting deer have that, you know, 55 out of 80 acres that they can call their own that you don't really get your scent to your site, your sound into, and you add food plots in there and you add bedding area creation, travel corridors, mock scrapes, whatever it might be. And now you take that little 20 acre neighborhood scenario and you magnify it and put it on steroids basically. And you, you produce it in 55 acres out of 80 or even 25 acres out of 40, whatever the percentage is. And you have this hot spot that draws in a lot of the mature bucks in the area. And then of course, if you're not managing the doe herds and you're not, you know, you're not and you, and you're, you're putting the conditions together that create a giant doe herd, then that can take up a lot of space and those bucks won't stay on the land during the day. But that's a, a little bit of a difference. Yeah, Sure. Uh, they <laughs> it's crazy to me how smart they are sometimes and how they can figure that oh, stuff yeah. out and what's also crazy is how dumb we can be sometimes <laughs> you know <laughs> well so. yeah we're we're not yeah we're we can be the world's greatest predator and we can be uh not and we can be a guy <laughs> the with world's the, greatest <laughs> a guy walking around with a stick in the woods right <laughs> yeah you know you think about it uh like there's many times you can go to a stand and if it's a noisy stand, you can climb. So here you, you got to that stand without spooking any deer. And then the, just the noise from that tree stand, whether it's a climber, a squeaky ladder stand or, or a portable stand in, or hang on. And, and these deer can hear you a hundred yards away or 200 yards away, getting in there and on a 40 acre parcel, mm-hmm. it's only 440 yards wide. And so a lot of times you're not only spooking the deer that are on your land, but off your land too. And mm-hmm. so you can create a nocturnal herd in a nocturnal parcel really quick just by not being quiet let alone mm. everything else that management and site management everything else too yeah and so on that note and you may have already answered it um but since you've you know been to so many public parcels and been to so many uh places doing consulting and and it sounds like you really put an emphasis on scouting people as much as you do whitetail, what's the biggest mistake that you do see people making when they're going into like a heavily pressured public piece? I think it's not, uh, you know, hunting pressure is, I mean, a uh, public land is one thing because, um, you can get into unpressured whitetails and have a good hunt, but then not managers managing your scent in and out or while you're on stand. So I like hunting absolutes, meaning that, um, you know, I'm looking at if I'm going to hunt this area, I'm going to hunt on this side of the bench or on this side of the point, because I don't think that deer are going to come in that area. And so my scent can be contained. Maybe in the UP Michigan, I hunted by a lot of beaver ponds. I blew my scent out over the pond. So I might have my favorite stand on the northwest side of the pond, but 
if I didn't have northwest winds that was blowing back over the pond, then I'd hunt over with south winds on the south side. Even though that south side didn't produce a lot of bucks for me, I didn't want to, um, you know, leave my scent cone unmanaged. And, and so I think a lot of people have the assumption that if you're using Ozonics or keeping your clothes ultra clean, that you can just go hunt anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, to me, what I found, especially as the bucks age to four or five. And, and it could be, in what I've seen, that's all the same. It doesn't matter if it's four or five-year-old in Michigan or four or five-year-old in Wisconsin or four or five-year-old in Iowa. They all pretty much act the same mm-hmm. as far as they're, they're pretty elusive, and, um, but, but really not managing your impact in and out. Um, and part of that, you know, we all think of scent, but uh, sound is just as, just as important. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where we hunt, we don't really have, most of the time, we don't have a lot of defined trails in the areas we hunt a lot of times. So um, they're more like filter areas where the deer, like they're going to go through this 50 or 100 yard stretch right here. Yeah, but th- there's not really a great trail. I mean, you can see where deer have walked a group, maybe a doe yeah. family group have walked, you know, but not really a trail. So, you yeah. know, when you're say when you're bow hunting or you're you're you know having to even if you're gun hunting and it's thick and you're going to have to have close range shot, how are you picking the right tra- tree to hang in? Yeah, I I love that question. That's a good question because again, I'm so there's a couple scenarios. You know, let's say I'm hunting the top of a draw, and this draw might drop down 500 feet in elevation, and it's almost like just a big bowl around the top. And so there could be deer trail, 10 yards later deer trail, 10 yards later deer trail, all the way down for 100 yards across this flat bench section. What I'm doing is I might pinch off that upper, those upper two trails, sit right on that second trail, and then I'm watching three trails below me. And the point is I don't want to ever get a deer downwind. And mm-hmm. so I look at it like, even though that buck might cross 50 yards away and I can't get a shot that I'm living to hunt that spot another day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not spooking them. So I'm, I'm hunting that absolute, I'm going to the edge and it's the same with um, a movement on a flat area where you have that 75 yards that deer could creep through. I'm going in as far as I think I can get away with and blow my scent out of that movement. And so in knowing full well that there's a good chance that on half that movement, I can't shoot that deer if they go through, but at the same time I can hunt that, that movement again another day i'm not spooking mm-hmm. them out so i think the big temptation is to go in the middle and uh and spook that movement out and another thing too if there's a mature buck that's going through that area i find a high percentage of the time he's going on the downwind side of that movement because he can scent check every deer in there for 100 yards in mm-hmm. 150 yards in sometimes and the, the whole reason you're hunting on that side is the whole reason he's in front of your stand 20, 30 yards and you can get a shot at him. Right. So again, it's just plain. I have a, I have a stand on either side of that movement and, and maybe on the one end for a different wind as they curve off a different direction. But I'm trying to be able to chip back and forth at that movement, maintain the movement. And then what I find, it just, it just falls into a number of sets that you're going to shoot that buck that's in that movement you want um, just because you're maintaining the movement. You're not spooking it out. Mm-hmm. So, if you're putting one or two trails behind you, are you assuming that you're high enough that the your scent blowing downwind to those trails would go over the top of them? Or yeah, maybe like in the case of that upper draw where I'm hunting, um, uh, but most of the time, if they're above you and behind you, they're going to spook. So what I might do is hinge cut a couple trees to block out those trails, so those deer either have to go all the way up into the field to go around me, or or into an opening or to an area they don't want to go during the daylight, um, or they're down in front of me. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to uh, pinch that area off or I'm just simply, if I can't do that, I'm hunting. Maybe that one trail is just below me a foot in front of the tree. I can cover another tr- couple trails and I'm just hoping at some point that buck is on the high side of that draw or the outside of that movement in the flat woods um, with the thought that he's in that location sent checking the does in the inside um, and he's on that downwind favor, just like I am waiting for him in that location. And if it's on private land, then I'm making a travel corridor there for deer, um, so that there's an actual deer trail for him. And I'm, I'm opening up the canopy there so that they're actually getting more regeneration on that trail that I want them, that trail or two. Um, I'm putting a mock scrape there to try to define the movement. And, you know, if it's legal, I'm putting a water hole in the location like that in hill country. So I'm using as many different sweeteners of that movement that I can to make sure I'm drawing them to the outside of the movement and I'm still not affecting the inside of that movement and destroying the movement itself. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, I understand you're a busy man and a hard worker, and I just can't thank you enough for your expertise and your time tonight, man. I really appreciate it. Well, you can maybe tell, but I get passionate about this stuff. I love, <laughs> I love whitetails. Yep. You know, that's why I don't really hunt much else. And the, the fishing is a nice uh, compliment to it, a little bit of relaxation, but you know, I love the whitetails mm-hmm. and uh, trying to figure them out and, you know, continually asking why they do what they do. And it's, um, it, you know, I love, you know, I visit about 75 clients a year across the country and I love visiting clients because it's every parcel you get to learn or, reaff- you know, reaffirm mm-hmm. something you've learned on another parcel. So it's, uh, it's fun. It's sure. a fun journey. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you guys and discuss yeah. it because it's, Cause it's fun. I like talking. This oh, stuff. me too. You got me fired up for sure. I'm <laughs> well, I'm ready cool. to ready to hunt right now. But uh, what's well, you got to let me know about that big one down there too. Oh, I that's, will. That's if pretty we, cool. I love that. I love that type of uh, hunt. That one on one. Yeah, for sure. It's not uh, probably the best way to go about things on public land. But uh, I'm going to try to give it one more try, Bramie. Maybe this year, you know. So, <laughs> um, what's the best way for the listener to get connected with you or find out what you're doing, learn more from you? Well, there's, uh, if they visit uh, whitetailhabitatsolutions.com, that's my website. And from there, you know, there's way to, ways to contact. The contacts go, usually go through my wife. And so she kind of weeds, <laughs> weeds some of the, you know, the, the emails out that um, we don't need to, to respond to, that kind of stuff. But she's pretty good at that. And then um, from there, I have the books that I sell on my site. I have my books that I sell on Amazon. Um, my YouTube channel is Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Um, so that's another location. And I have links on there back to the site. And so all pretty easy to find. And then, you know, a lot of times my clients, whether it's switchgrass or nocturnal box, trail cam strategies, if you put in search um, words and, and uh, sentences into Google, you'll end up finding finding my stuff under Whitetail Habitat Solutions with all the articles I have out there. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's another thing a lot. A lot of times people just stumble into me. So, um, <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah. We will yeah. link to all that in the show notes w- below. So, if you're listening, please go visit that. Yeah. And, uh, Jeff, good luck this year. We look forward to hearing, hearing from you. Yeah. I look forward to hearing you, hearing back. I love, love those kind of stories. And sure. You guys have a big passion for this stuff. So, I can fully appreciate what you guys are trying to do. So, awesome. Best of, best of luck. Thank you. Well, we'll be talking to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, I pretty much feel like I know everything there is to know about Whitetail <laughs> <Do> now. <you? laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad he was uh, able to impart that knowledge with me, and I'm 
pumped now. Yeah. Because yeah. like deer making scrapes where we're at right now, like rut action is actually starting. We're starting to see deer, like bucks, not tolerate each other's presence, and like it's about to be that time, dude. Yeah, I know. It's it's like we're on. I mean, any day can happen right now. You know what yes. I mean? As far as just like. It's it's a good enough time of the year at this point that it's like you got to feel good every mm-hmm. time you go in the woods. You got to yes. feel like you got a chance. And um, speaking of scrapes, I did a mock scrape right next to my stand the mm-hmm. other day, like two days ago when I hunted, and there was tracks in it the next day. I don't mm-hmm. know if they used it. It looked like it was still wet, but then again, you know, it's kind of been cool at night and it could have not evaporated or whatever, yeah. but like... It looked like something had used it. Yeah, that's so, cool. Which I don't know, but they work. They walked right through it. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's a it's that time of year, man. You're right. I'm I'm uh, pretty excited, and I think uh, I probably need to get off this this headset pretty quick because I've got to get to bed. Ooh, I got to eat still. It's late. You got to get up early. Uh-oh. I mean, your stand's already hung. I know. So. How awesome is that? Oh, my gosh. Yes. We did so many hanging hunts last year, <laughs> and we'd already done a few this year. And, yeah. like, I left my stand up, and this is going to be the second time I've hunted it since it's been left up. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. It's the best, dude. It's nice, man. I mean, it's going to be good. I know. I don't – I don't – like, I want to continue to hang and hunt and try to develop to where I can actually kill a deer – on a hanging hunt because mm-hmm. you know we last year in kansas we killed on a hanging hunt but it was like same thing like two hunts later or whatever yeah. so we didn't technically hang it that morning mm-hmm. so you want to like there's a lot to being quiet and getting in there and doing this and that it's hard to do so i definitely would like to prove to myself that i can make that happen mm-hmm. you know yeah for sure but, Anyway, I need to get to sleep. Don't forget to give us a review on iTunes uh, for the podcast, and that is your chance to win that Exodus Trek trail camera. You have been warned one final time, and uh, the next time you hear from us, you will uh, you will know who won, and hopefully it'll be you. Got good chances. You do if you've done if you've done the review. So, anyway, thanks for those reviews, and uh, remember, this is your element. Living it. Hey guys, it's Steve on my phone in Hawaii, where it happens to be turkey season. And it is right now turkey week here at Meat Eater, which means tons of great turkey hunting content, a lot of great offers on turkey gear at TheMeatEater.com, and even a calling contest where I am getting my ass thoroughly kicked. Go find it all at TheMeatEater.com.